0: Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast all about members of the historical community being given an opportunity for a controlled explosion. I am public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever loyal co-host, fellow historian and good friend Kyle Glover. Hello! And this week we're continuing on from our last episode and staying in our nice warm World War II comfort zone. Joining us this week, we have military historian and specialist in Anglo-Polish relations in World War II, Jenny Grant. Jenny. Evening. Welcome to History Rage. Hello, how are you both? We're very well, how are you? Excellent, thank you very much.
1: I'm good, I'm good. good. Feeling angry? Um, I can be, absolutely, yes.
0: Good, good, ready to unleash some rage. So we connected on Twitter and uh, our paths have Briefly crossed at the Chelsea History Festival last year. I did wave, but I don't think you noticed me.
1: I am so sorry.
0: But for our other listener, tell us a bit about yourself and your research and your work.
1: Yeah, so I'm sort of coming at the history from two angles. I'm head of history. I, I, I teach this stuff. Um, have done for, for years and years and years. And then I'm doing a PhD looking at the nature of the alliance uh, between the UK and Poland and how that evolves and what a challenge the Poles and their arrival kind of present to these British institutions and organisations and mm. how the Poles respond to that and it's like socially and culturally and so forth. So, you know, trying to find like a trajectory in that relationship and it's so messy because the war changes um, geopolitically in terms of like the Poles so many times and then actually so many of them end up in the UK afterwards and have to sort of deal with the consequences Of all of that. So, yeah, it's very much what it's like to be in exile and a military exile on foreign soil when you don't speak the language and trying to sort of make this coalition work.
0: So how long have you got to go on that PhD, first of all?
1: Oh, well, um, you know, I don't think there's going to be much of the North Pole left. (laughs) You know, I, I think I've got oh, I got an extension. I think twenty twenty eight, but I'm going to try and bring it in before that. That's that yeah. my aim. I'm one of those people that works best with like sort of terrifying deadlines looming over them. So um,
0: yeah, yeah, the yeah. sort of person that can do a do a full thesis in in the last thirty minutes before the deadline, really.
1: Yeah, and my yeah. supervisor's is yeah. definitely not listening to this. I'm hoping, but yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we will get him on to rage. Uh, the you know your your dissertation ex- extension is
1: that would just be the worst. great.
0: So, yeah, this brings us round nicely to our rage question then and the uh, basic thing that history rage is all about. So in your own time, Jenny, and with as much emotion as you feel that the situation justifies, would you please tell us what you wish people would just stop believing?
1: I mean, the big one is basically the polls in World War Two full stop. You know, you've got this nation that's invaded from both sides. So it's not easily defeated. I mean, how long did the BEF hold out against the Germans, for heaven's sake? You've got that aspect of it. And then people go, oh, yeah, yeah, no, we've totally recognised the Polish contribution. And they bring up Wojtek. I mean, it's a bear. He carries crates of ammunition. It's not that valuable a military contribution, we have to say. And you've got 303, which is fine. But you're ignoring completely like the bulk of the army, for heaven's sake, in the Italian campaign. You're ignoring the guys up in Normandy. You're ignoring the navy that are there from the outset. And then you've kind of got this idea of, oh, well, no, no, the Poles were really brave, so I'm happy for them to be our neighbours, as if, like, they, they deserve to be there through good behaviour, and the point is they couldn't go home because we'd just given half their country away, but that's okay, but please come here and work in a bloody factory, which is way below your social status, and then we'll mock you because we'll sort of ignore all that trauma and sort of put on funny accents, particularly Eugene bloody hat, Man. and and... Um, Yes, that's it. So it's like, you know, we'll ignore your contribution apart from these tiny, tiny bits, and then we'll minimise the difficulties that we faced when you lived here, and we'll certainly ignore the fact that, you know, Britain was kind of responsible for a lot of that. So, yeah, it's all of that. It's about the contribution being neglected and you know, yeah, it's just kind of you know my grandparents' generation just having to put up with this idea that they came over to the UK for a better life. You're like Poland was fine in 1939, thank you very much, loving it actually. So that's where we're at. Thank you.
0: <laughs> okay, and I'm now I'm now nervously looking at our question <laughs> oh, list. Oh, oh God, they have got a lot of tip offs there. We're going. Oh good lord, I'm going to have to turn the volume down on my headphones. Okay, so. So so go on then, Kyle. You're going to like this blue touch paper. Okay. Here you go. Now, I say this with the deepest of respect. Until I started following you on Twitter, basically all I knew about Poland in the Second World War was Wojciech the bear. How come a what is effectively a mascot is better known than the actual soldiers and servicemen and service people he was with?
1: The Wojtek thing is weird because like, I just grew up with Wojtek, So, like, you know, soldier bears were kind of just part mm. of the landscape. OK, yeah. so I don't, I, I still quite, it's a very sweet story, you know. It's this yeah. little, you know, orphaned bear cub. is adopted by these soldiers when they themselves are in exile. And then, you know, he's, he's in Italy as a full-grown bear hoiking ammunition and freaking out sort of allied troops. And then he sort of ends up in Edinburgh Zoo and it's a very it's a sweet story. It just got cultural cut through from the outset, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, you've had I like the Soldier Bear book. I've got about three books about him. And there's another one just come out in America, a children's book. Apparently, he was mentioned on sort of Blue Peter and so forth. So he got that sort of cultural cut through. I'm being really cynical. I think some of it's because he encapsulates like our stereotypes about the Poles. So they're like really kind hearted and brave, mm-hmm. but, like, deeply impractical. I, I, I think that's that's some of it. Mm. I think some of it, and, and I'm going to get psychological here, is, like, this displacement activity. We can acknowledge the role of the Poles with this very neat story of this bear. Yeah. But, like, br- brutally, like, he joins them after we've had the horrors of Siberian deportation. There's no issue of him having a home to go to because he's kind of this orphan child that's adopted and brought to sanctuary. So there isn't that issue. And then, you know, when we get, you know, he ends up in Edinburgh Zoo, which is sweet, but it does kind of conceal, like, the horrors of exile um, yeah. for the Poles. So I think it's just it's a sweeter story than what actually happens to the Poles themselves. And then why is that sort of capture the imagination more? I mean, I suppose part of it is you've got the scope of, like, the Polish contribution. So you've got, I mean, you've got the SOE, you've got intelligence networks, you've got the Home Army, you've got, you know the sort of the Poles and the Soviet command and then when you get over here you've got them in the navy from the outset we've got the air force uh, and you've got the army in Italy northwest Europe but I think during the war we, we have to do all these sort of pivots in cultural memory and our understanding of the alliances so like you know suddenly USSR's our ally or suddenly Italy's on our side and I think the same thing happens with the Poles certainly after USSR joins and you get this massive sort of fragmentation of, of, you know, this distrust where Poles are able to show evidence of the Katyn massacre and it's poo-pooed by the British. You know, they mm-hmm. talk about Siberian deportation and warn people about, you know, what the Russians are really like, for example. And that's sort of set aside. And you get this even from the outset, like the September nine campaign, that the Polish air force is saying these guys are shooting us down as we're parachuting um, to safety, you know, the records that the British completely dismiss this, you know, the Luftwaffe would never, you know, do this. So you've got this distrust. So I think that's kind of it. And then I suppose right at the end of the war, sort of 45, I was reading sort of Wendy Webster's uh, Mixing It book, which I absolutely loved. And she's talking about like, a lot of it's about the sort of the British response to being sidelined by the Americans. So you've got, is it Objective Burma, for example, or like American news reels, which sort of, you know, suggest it is an American only enterprise. And in response, the British begin to play up their role um, and, yeah. you know, and minimize that of the allies. So mm-hmm. there's lots going on. So the point that, you know, when the Poles, you know, like the Polish Second Corps offered sanctuary as part of the Polish Resettlement Corps, they're seen as kind of, settling by choice as sort of economic migrants almost rather than you know there's any appreciation of the journey that they've they've gone through and then that's kind of played down as well and I think there's an element where the Polish community sort of turns in on itself when it's established so yeah you've got kind of quite a lot post-war there as well so we it's very very messy this question of why is it we don't appreciate the scale of the Polish contribution and yeah, I think it's that sort of post-war. I mean, I did this, this little um, survey and it was, you know, how much were either like sort of Polish vehicles or Polish stories represented in sort of post-war British comics or modelling kits or anything. And it doesn't really kick in until we get like post-Battle of Britain movie, post-Bridge Too Far, and you begin to see in the sort of mid-70s. So it's quite mm. interesting that you get these sort of variations in, in the sort of cultural memory.
0: Thank you. So you kind of hinted there in the past that, you know, the Poles get ignored. Britain has this concept of the phony war which is where we have at least uh, for those of you that are not World War II nuts is you can look at it in two ways. It's either there's a period of the war where nothing's really happening or at least nothing's really happening in Britain or as I like to think of it it's the period of the war when we'd actually promised to help Poland and then just didn't. During that time from the outbreak of war to or from at least the UK declaration of war through to getting kicked out of Dunkirk, which is what we'd consider to be that war period. What's actually going on in Poland at that time?
1: Yeah so and this is kind of one of the real sort of tragedies one of the many many tragedies of Polish history, which is that the poles legitimately think that their strategy is built around holding the line against the Germans until the British and French can mobilize mm. and attack them from the west. And that has huge implications on the ground. So obviously they, they get invaded by Germany um, on the 1st and then by the, the Soviet Union um, on the 17th. And, and that's pretty much the end of it. By the end of October, we're fully occupied. Okay. So the impact on the ground, I mean, the first up is you, you, you sort of fairly predictably have this massive refugee crisis. I mean, one of the reasons that you have the difficulty mounting a sort of military response is that the roads are jam-packed with people sort of fleeing mm. in one direction or another. You've got the destruction of the cities, like Warsaw, for example. You know, a lot of these major buildings are destroyed very, very early on in the war. There's a reference to um, some Poles in Scotland who sort of done this map of Poland um, on the ground and they've done little models for each of the major cities. And then for Warsaw, they just did these little burn, burning blocks, basically. So you have that. And then you effectively have what the Poles would term the fourth partition. So in the late 18th century, they'd been partitioned between their three neighbours, and this is now the, the fourth one. They, they disappear off the map effectively. So you have Germanisation is put into effect. You have mass deportations from Western section into Germany itself as slave labour. You've got the destruction of culture. You've got, you know, the sort of um, arrest of academics. Um, education is limited, for example. You've got national treasures are taken away. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got really some, sort of severe rationing put into place. So to begin with, for example, Polish Jews are given just slightly less than than, than sort of the Catholic Poles. And then that's reduced further. But It gets to the point where it looks like they're sort of facing mass starvation. So they actually have to bring extra grain in to keep this population from, you know, rebelling massively. Yeah. And you've also got atrocities on the ground. I mean, you know, the question you're asking me is, you know, Roger Morehouse's First to Fight book. Um so in response to sort of resistance, you've got, you know, sort of mass killings. I mean, the one that really stays with me is in Bidgosh, where you've got this group of really young boy scouts that are you know put in front of a firing squad, for example. So you have that on the ground. And the reason it's so harsh is because the Slavs were deemed an, an inferior race. So it didn't matter. You know, the, the idea was, you know, mm. layman's rhyme involves the Poles not being there anymore. The extermination was the ultimate goal. And then I suppose in the East, you've got you know, for for different reasons, not on, on racial grounds. You've got these massive deportations, um, you know, you've got prison of wars, and then and then you've got your sort of civilians, your, your kulaks and so forth over towards sort of Siberia. But I suppose at the same time you've also got um on the ground, and this, this bit's kind of often forgotten, the development of the massive resistance networks. So um, and yeah. you get an underground government is set up, you've got sort of resistance units that are originally a sort of set up quite often on a, sort of local initiative, but you've also got, you know, the sort of the army that remains and sort of building it um, themselves, which later becomes the home army. They sort of set up intelligence networks. And I mean, I suppose one of the key things is that this is a fiercely nationalistic country, but they've also got a very vivid sense of history. So when they refer to it as the fourth partition, they're seeing the second world war very much as in, as a trend in history. They know what they're up against and they have experience in setting up these underground networks and resistance Mm -hmm. and the sort of the nationalist sort of, icons to sort of tap into. So you've got these two elements of, you know, these great atrocities occurring, but also this sort of high level of resistance. And um, I think it was reading statistics, something like 43% of all um, intelligence reports that are received by um, the Western Allies come from Polish networks, for example. So it's, you know, uh, yeah. this 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 concept that of resistance against this, yeah.
0: I think they, correct me if I'm wrong here, but they, there is this long tradition of, Germany marching into Poland on one side and squeezing that side of Russia Poland's most recent appearance at the time has basically been to be into carve its territory from Russia and Germany post World War 1 you know how often is Poland just having to to do this
1: yeah i mean i one of the first things that, um, that the Germans destroy is this the sort of um, statue commemorating uh, the, the defeat of the Teutonic Knights um, at the Battle of Grunwald. So we're going mm. way back. I mean, this way is, back. you know, way Centies back. Um,
0: the past, um, really you enough.
1: know, And then you've got against, um, you know, God, I mean, the Russians forever, effectively. So, yeah, I mean, the most obvious one would be sort of 1920, the sort of Battle of Warsaw, which, um, you know, it looks like Poland's going to fall again um, to the Bolsheviks. And managed to sort of pull this victory out, and and as a result, the the Russian forces withdraw. So, yeah, very much this, you know, consciousness of of being this. I never know how to say this word. and I should. Is it bulwark? How how do we? it? Yeah. Yeah. Is that how we say? You know. You know, between these sort of two forces, and certainly defending from the idea of sort of the, you know, the uncivilized forces from the east is that you know very much seeing themselves as sort of defender of, of Western Christianity and civilization that's things like the siege of Vienna it's it's not unjustified at all but I think that's part of the problem is that this this line you know it's like Denethor isn't it you know there's nobody's appreciating the sacrifice of Gondor and and, you know and keep it keeping the force of Mordor away and so it's that yeah
0: I I know exactly what you mean though yes thank you thank you good yeah you're amongst fellow travelers oh yes You, you mentioned and we both mentioned this regular squeezing of, uh, of Poland. So you've got the Soviets invading on one side and you've got the Germans invading on the other. Like you say, all the roads are jammed with refugees. Where are they going?
1: Wherever. I mean, it, quite often, either away from the cities and to the countryside, because that seems to be where, you know, the, the bombing is less advanced. I mean, in the case of um, my uh, my grandma's family, so she's 18, she's just finished um, high school, and um, she's over Toward, they're living in Wamshel, which is just to the northeast of, of Warsaw. Mm. The dad decides to sell everything, and they move over towards the east. And then they get caught up in the the deportations there. But yeah, it's, it's you know, it, if war occurred today, where would you you know, you've got an hour to pack your goods? Where do you go? Probably away from the cities would seem like a sensible thing. Uh, away from the, the west um, to begin with. Um, but yeah. as I say, then you get you know caught up with, with by the sort of Soviet invasion. So. Yeah. But I mean, I suppose this is, you know, one of the things, you know, that sort of the idea of sort of blitzkrieg relies on that as a feature of holding up this sort of defending forces, doesn't it? That you've got this this breakdown in this sort of infrastructure. Mm
0: -hmm. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So today we celebrate 302 and 303 squadrons, which were made up of pobbles. But how did Britain treat Polish servicemen and service women that were here at the time?
1: Um, yeah, this is quite an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, there's yeah. loads to go at. So And I suppose the first thing is kind of what do the Brits expect of the Poles before they arrive? What did they actually know about it? So so you've got, you know, like you've got your Joseph Conrad. You've got things like you've got Paderewski, you've got Chopin. So basically all Poles are musical and patriotic. Um, and quite romantic. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not bad, but really Poland doesn't loom large in sort of British understanding of Eastern Europe. Yeah. And there's a really good book comes out, I think it's about 35, 36, called Peddling Poland by uh, Bernard Newman, who's like the Michael Palin of the 1930s. And he just goes and plunks himself down and, and you know, he's a, he's got a bike and he just travels round around Poland. So that's reported and, and that gets sort of reviews in the press. But they, they don't know much. And then I guess um, once they kind of arrive, you know, they're kind of tarnished slightly by this idea of having been defeated first in Poland and and then in France. So you have that element. But it kind of varied massively because they're so geographically spread. So, for example, um, I think one of the interesting things I was reading was um, if you were a refugee, but you arrived in uniform, you were taken, you were shown much greater respect than if you were a refugee who'd escaped in civilian clothing or you were a civilian. So in rural Scotland, for example, they're not used to these huge um, immigrants coming, but they Mm. absolutely sort of rally around them. They invite them into their home and they get their sort of um, kids to translate the German and French that they're speaking. They they sort of set up fish fish and chip meals and and everything. Uh, They lay on the English language. They sort of do, try to sort of, they do sort of charity runs but not charity charity but you know you know the basics that you need just to get through the day so yeah. books and jigsaws and playing cards and, and cigarettes cigarettes always go down well don't they so you've got that well i mean when we get to the back of britain you've got the, the poles as absolute celebrities and you get them sort of being you know fated at the, the dorchester and, and all of this you've got things like the um the flight of the orgel this or, sorry, uh, which is this this submarine that escapes from Tarlin without any charts? Mm-hmm. They're just doing it by eye, which is pretty incredible. So you've got all these sort of amazing heroic stories, and at the same time, the Poles and their Ministry of Information trying to shape the narrative of the Poles are plucky, and you get all these books written about the sort of scale of, of Polish contributions. I suppose a major hostility during wartime comes from their success with women. So you get just throughout the, this idea, particularly from men, that the Poles are Overly confident that they, 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 I mean, they do, they tailor their, their uniforms. They've mm-hmm. got, high, they've got higher hygiene standards, you know, it's, it's they come in and that they're, they're suave and they dance and they kiss the hands. And lots of men do see that as, as a threat.
0: I'd see us there getting, you know, invaded by Poland from the east and invaded by America from the west. Well, in there regard.
1: we go. Absolutely. It's just <laughs> you know don't stand a chance to be. Um, and you do actually get, I think, fashions and preferences. But um, I think, you know, lots of British women then sort of have their eye caught by the Canadians to a greater degree and, and and all of this. And then again, it changes 1941 when the USSR joins, because you've then got this, as I say, breakdown in relationships over things like Katyn and Siberia, where... The British, it's in their interest to hush all of that up. And the Poles, you know, Um, this is pretty horrendous. You've had, you know, tens of thousands of officers massacred. You've had, you know, sort of Siberian deportation was horrendous. And that's all sort of shushed up. And then you've also got the the Soviet propaganda machine kicks in, which has far greater resources than the Polish one, which is trying to label them all as sort of fascists and anti-Semites. And, you know, it, it was, yeah, and, and that, they're, they're, you know, as we see with Ukraine at the moment, that actually this land is historically ours and so forth. And um, so you get that justification. So, yeah, that kind of poisons it. So after the war, where Britain's kind of broken and you've got shortage of housing, you get that sort of not particularly deep-seated suspicion of foreigners coming through, of we don't have enough resources to support our own. So you get the sort of polls Go Home campaign, for example, and you've got... I think it's the Daily Mail, um, which isn't a surprise, sort of reporting on the number of ships going back to Poland and how many have empty seats on them, for example. It's that real sort of level of sort of tabloid nastiness. And then trying, even in the nicer middle class ones, it's like, well, we do think it's responsible of the Poles to go home to help rebuild Poland. That was the nice narrative that was given, despite the fact that, you know, like my, my grandfather doesn't have a city to go to. It, it's not in Poland anymore. And he'd be shot. Uh, a lot of the officers that go home. Are, are killed um, or tortured, even the mm. really, really high-profile ones. You know, uh, Matek's right-hand man Kubinski, or you know, um, you've got sort of Skalsky, for example, Stanislaw Skalsky, who's a sort of ace, and they're they're, they're tortured, that they're, you know, and threatened with death, for example. So, yeah, I'm getting away from myself here, aren't I, a little bit? But yeah, okay. it, I think you
0: get the point- carried away. That's what history rages about.
1: Okay, but I, I think the, the key point is this relationship evolves and twists massively Um, and and none of it's anybody's fault necessarily but yeah you you know I'd I'd almost wish I could sort of stop in 1940 which is the high point in the sort of uh, relations of of sort of friendliness in this honeymoon period before it gets sort of much more sort of bogged down and and messy. Probably the
0: most widely known representation of the Polish that basically I've seen in media and popular culture is and you mentioned it before so I'm, again, ready to light a blue touch paper and hide under my desk, yeah. It's Gene Hackman's portrayal of Sosabowski uh, in A Bridge Too Far. Now, I think we can agree the accent needs to be a lot less German.
1: A bit less German, maybe a bit less Texan. I'm not quite sure what's going on there,
0: but uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, how much How much of like that portrayal of Sosabowski is artistic license and how much of it actually has merit?
1: Yeah, so, uh, I, mean, uh, I mean, I'm mean, i going to sort of quote Hal Sasebowski here, who is, you know, the sort of, you know, great-grandson, who says that the family signed off on the portrayal. And um, so in terms of, you know, your mannerisms and so forth, I've, I've got no concern. I, I was watching it again. It's really quite interesting, actually, the way it's framed, because how they actually deal with the language issue, because I don't know whether he would have spoken directly or would have had an interpreter. That's, that's quite an interesting mm. element to it. And they kind of just wait for him and, and sort of invite him into conversations. But, I mean, God, he does get, you know, a lot of the best lines, doesn't he? Um, oh, good,
0: doesn't he just?
1: Oh, God, yeah. Apart know. from
0: bring up the PR, you know.
1: Well, okay, you know, I quite like the your silence is thunderous element, you know. And, <laughs> and I think, you know, if you go into um, his autobiography, it's, I mean, the whole of the the difficulty hinges on this relationship, doesn't it, between Browning and Zosibovsky, And yeah, when you read his autobiography, it's all about how I think it literally starts off with him sort of being promoted, but then being told to sort of know his place and stop being so outspoken. So he's very much responding to this. Hmm. So you've kind of got the personal relationship um, that's problematic. But in a sense, that shouldn't actually matter if you've got a standard chain of command, and I suppose, you know, what happens with Operation Gun, in a way that doesn't really happen with like Alexander and Anders or even sort of Simmons and Maciek is like all the tensions of the coalition sort of come to the fore. So you've already had tensions on resourcing. So, I mean, you know, the Poles build their own sort of um, parachute jump, for example. But, you know, you need access to your planes and everything. So you need to secure that. So that creates tension in the relationship. And what, what do mm. you perceive your needs to be? You've also got the idea of like the sovereignty of the brigade. So it was created as the first independent Polish brigade. It's, it's supposed to be this unit that is not under British command in the same way that the the, the other units are. Um, and it was supposed to then be used to sort of you know support air, an uprising, in, in particular the Warsaw uprising. And they end yeah. up with that. That's why it's been created. You know, it's, it's this. You know, it's, it's these commandos desperate to sort of get into to Poland to fight, and then they've sort of been put to use on this particular plan so you've kind of got this resentment there so yeah it's just I think it is the it shows the tensions I mean Sosabossi's character is is many things I mean he's, he's, his autobiography is just very funny and very very dry and he's extremely astute and he kind of knows what he's like as a leader and as, as a subordinate but it just it it doesn't work here so in that sense I think the portrayals. Accurate. If you can get over the accent, you're a better man than I am. It's just um, yeah.
0: <laughs> but all that stuff about him, like demanding the the orders in, in writing, so that it can be rubbed in the face when he, I mean, do, does does stand there at the start of this whole thing, knowing it's going to go wrong?
1: Certainly, that's yeah essentially. I mean, he's talking about things like he reads, um, I think, the Dutch newspapers and they're also talking about, you know, the importance of Arnhem, for example. He's like, of course the Germans are aware of its strategic significance. It would be ridiculous. Um, not they wouldn't to. be
0: holding it if they weren't,
1: would well, they? You know, so he, he's sort of talking about that. And then He's talking about all of the other problems. I mean, one of the big things is, you know, how many sort of operations are planned and then cancelled at the last minute and so forth. So when it actually goes ahead, he's got no faith in it. And then you've got the delays on the ground and and you've got, you know, your issues with, you know, the fog and and so forth. So no, I mean, he's got no faith in it from the outset whatsoever, which is really problematic. And I don't think that's entirely sort of Polish fault. Again, it's this sort of breakdown in in the command, I think.
0: hmm But those scenes where you see him kind of losing his rag with Browning, then is the it does nicely portray that idea of this is a guy that knows this plan is I wouldn't say doomed, but it's a stretch and he's being treated like a third class general, yeah, you know, absolutely.
1: So, I mean, I don't think certainly books it's suggested that the, the shouting, but it's very much that he is telling his senior officer what the, the problems are and the many problems that he's identified. And he's very much of this was encouraged in the Polish army. And I don't know to what degree that is accurate. But yeah, that that that, that sort of frustration. And I suppose some of it also comes down to this idea that the Poles don't have any reserves. That's it. They, they, they don't have a huge pool of recruitment to call on. So the brigade is it, which doesn't mean that they show a lack of bravery, but they really do want to make their lives count if they're going to throw them away. So I, I think that's one element of it as well.
0: Yeah. I suppose one thing i would never really considered is just how small the overall Polish army that is in exile is, you know, and it's not like you can get reinforcements from Poland without a massive operation to, to liberate people that, that's just going to be thoroughly impractical. So, so yeah, I would, I would say concerned. Yeah. We had, Zach White on a few weeks ago talking about Wellington's army and he was saying that, you know, the British army was about 50,000 and Wellington was saying it was the only army that we've got. We've got to look after it. and You can't you you can't go and do the sort of daft things that you can do when you've got a limitless supply of Americans, for example.
1: Uh, so I mean, it kind of changes with the recruitment because they kind of, you know, in France, when they escape, you've got about 85,000 in, in the army. When they get back to the UK, it's 20,000. They kind of hope that there'll be masses of Polish, Americans and Canadians that will join. And they they don't. I think possibly because we're getting into sort of second generation and they'd rather serve with the Americans. But you do get a handful and from Argentina and so forth. And then towards the end of the war, you get lots that were actually sort of had been sort of constructed by the Wehrmacht, who are then freed as prisoners in Italy and in Normandy. But then that's actually then used against the poles later when we talk about giving them sanctuary. Of but half of these guys fought with the Germans, so you've got that kind of element as well. So yeah, it gets really, really sort of messy. The numbers towards the end. I mean, by the end of the war, you've got what's it quarter of a million poles under British command, um, which is significant. Plus, in the case of the yeah. sort of second corps, lots of families. And dependence. Um, So they are a much, much bigger force than any of the other sort of exiled army groups, which is kind of why they're taken so much more seriously, for example. You know, they have a role to play in Normandy. Uh, You know, they do get this bigger role and sort of access to resources and so forth. But it also means that they're just more problematic as well. So, yeah, the the sheer numbers sort of count in their favour to a degree, I guess. Um, How was the treatment of Poland?
0: before during and after the war shaped the british polish community today
1: yeah so and it's sort of problematic i mean the expectation of the poles at the end of the war was that they would go home to poland that was that was all they yeah. ever wanted that they mm. would you know that the path through italy would take them to poland that the path through the northwest europe campaign would take them to poland they they didn't want to to, to not be able to return and so britain comes up with this sort of solution which is you obviously can't forcibly deport these people. Um, and there's just too many of them. And there's a genuine sort of armed threat, certainly with the Polish Second Corps of just so many yeah. um, Poles. So you, you can't do that. So they can't with the Polish Resettlement Corps, which is that actually uh, Britain would take on the, the, those Poles that wish to stay. And don't get me wrong, they, they're given a huge amount of encouragement to go back to Poland. Lots of propaganda is sort of directed at them. Um, and they make it as easy as possible to return. But in the end, um, we do have this sort of sizable population that settles in the UK. And because of everything we've been discussing today, it's a really sort of mixed bag of of sort of, you know, emotions. So on the one hand, they are being given sanctuary from communism. You know, had yeah. my grandfather returned, he probably wouldn't have made it. That That's a big one, that there is a degree of gratitude. Mm. But at the same yeah. time, you've also got this sense of betrayal that they can't go home because of Yalta, which was signed off by the UK, by the Western Allies.
0: It was signed off by everybody other than Poland, really, wasn't it?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. a bit like yeah. a conference where everyone but Czechoslovakia is, is invited US oh, is USSR yeah. as well space. Um, you know, so, yeah. And then you've kind of got, like, the very personal experience of, of the practicalities of exile itself. So having to learn the language. I mean, Britain's relatively xenophobic still. And they're this sort of reflecting this at the time because, you know, they've been through Europe. They've been welcomed um, in different countries. And then they come to, to England and they're, they're treated with a great degree of suspicion. Um, And then for a lot of them, there's this fall in status as well. Um, You know, a lot of those who'd been deported were sort of, you know, prosperous middle classes, officers with status and and so forth. And then they're having to come. And because of the the sort of deal that they wouldn't pose a threat to British Labour, they're given, you know, the sort of the the, the lowliest of positions. And then you've also got on top of that all the, you, you know, you end up with sort of fairly high rates of sort of collapse in mental health, for example, because you've had this trauma of, as I say, sort of deportation and and so forth. So things like when they're put in the Polish resettlement camps, where they're put into the old um, sort of camps that housed, you know, Canadians and Americans and so forth, that sort of really sort of triggers sort of what we call PTSD now of, of being in these barracks, which they haven't been in since Siberia, for example. So you get that you get sort of suicide rates of people not being able to sort of adapt back into this country, for example. I mean, and then you've got all the sort of stress. God, this is really cheery, isn't it? You know, you've you've got you know sort of like wartime marriages. You've got trauma. You've got poverty. You've got all these real sort of stresses in these sort of fairly intense sort of family relationships. But then you've kind of got then the continuation of the sort of Polish culture because. I think the Poles, certainly for the first few years after they arrive, think that they will be able to go back to Poland, that communism will fall. So there's certainly a sort of push against naturalisation, for example. And then you've got, you know, the roots begin to develop. So you get like Polish churches are set up. You've got the Polish scouts, Polish schools, where they're taught sort of Polish handwriting, Polish language, all of this element and things. And then I suppose by the time you sort of move away, we're moving into sort of second generation, third generation, it begins to ease but you've still got your like absolute touchstones of like polish culture you know you've got yalta and victory parade um you know the victory parade of 1946 where uh the, the western poles are, are not invited i mean the air forces eventually mm. and then they decide not to because nobody else acknowledged you know that sense of betrayal is still there um it's still really vivid which you know really sort of shapes sort of anglo-polish relations even when we're coming mm. into sort of third and fourth generation it's, it's quite sort of yeah so it, that's still hanging
0: it. in there now
1: yeah oh victory parade again i did a deeply scientific study of you know what, what do you think about the victory parade because i think one of the key things um i think dan toman brings this up in britain's war is that the victory parade wasn't people didn't get that excited about it it was a bit like a sort of royal wedding where you know when it happens people sort of throw themselves into it but it's like you know We've got all of this sort of devastation in our cities. The Cold War means that there isn't a neat end to the war, that, you know, Mm. why did we join it? Well, Poland's now occupied, for example. Um, We're diminished. America's here. We've got the Communists pretty much on our doorstep. What exactly is there to celebrate? So it didn't have that much cut through. You know, there are parades throughout the war as the fact, you know, it only really matters to the Poles, I swear, this victory parade. You know, if if we sort of (laughs) typed it in as a sort of, I should do it. I should do a sort of med- media survey. The only people that will be mentioning it is going to be the polls who weren't invited to this party that nobody cared about. But it was hugely symbolic. And the poll- and the British do try to make up for it afterwards. You know, they sort of... The former president, uh, Raczynski, dies... And is yeah. buried so that they send an official representation, knowing that it will probably really annoy um, the Soviets. But that it has no cut through at all, whether the poles don't care. It's, it's all about the victory parade in Yalta. It's that betrayal.
0: And they're, they're still feeling that now and today.
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, we're losing the vast majority now. You know, we're only left with people who are sort of children, really, aren't we? a handful of veterans, but it's very much sort of passed through. It's, it's you know, I'm... You know, I, I would say pretty damn sort of anglicised and so forth, but it hurts on behalf of my grandparents. Absolutely.
0: Thank you very much, Jenny. I'm, the, I'm now hoping. I'm fairly sure, actually, from all that rage, that Kyle will now know more than simply bears. Yes, I do definitely. That was quite an eye opener. So, if you'd like to know more about Jenny's work, then you can follow her on Twitter at Silence in Polish, where you'll get anything but Polish silence. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank Feel you better? very
1: much. Absolutely.
0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavill. And I'm at Kyle G History. And you can leave comments, thoughts, and please send your own History Rages using the hashtag History Rage because we want to know what really gets on your goat. If you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe. Leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really means a lot to us when you do that. Thanks very much for listening. See you next time. Bye bye. Bye bye.